Good morning, peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, and I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Midtown, and privileged to be with you this morning. There's something you've probably recognized at some point in your life, and it's this, that conflict is always closer to community than you expected. Conflict is always closer to community than you expected. You had it happen to you. You join a community group, you get in a relationship, you have a group of friends, and at first you are thinking, this is absolutely perfect. This is no flaws in this group here. You might be even in a church and thinking there's absolutely no problems here whatsoever, and then it may take a few months, it may take a few minutes, but you realize these people have some issues. There are people in this group that chew really weird. There are people who talk really loud. There are people whose children are out of control. And you find out that conflict is always closer to communion than you expected it to be. You see that in your marriage. Most people, you've been married, you find that there's something that happens to most people, and that is at some point between I do and the last day of the honeymoon, you have some sort of a blow up. You have some sort of a major conflict. Am I right on this? Almost always this happens. I remember we made it through the first four days of bliss. Now, during that time, it wasn't complete bliss. Our car was totaled, literally, during those first few days. We got through that. No arguments, anything like that. Got through all sorts of other things. And then, on day number four, we went grocery shopping together. <laughs> and so, we were grocery shopping, and I noticed in our cart, there was a five-pound package of 80% lean meat which I knew was a mistake because there was 70% lean meat on the counter or in there that was 15 cents a pound cheaper. And of course, nobody in their right mind would get 80% lean if 70% lean was cheaper, would they? So kind person that I am, I removed that from the cart. I put it back where it belonged. I got the 70% lean and put it in the cart. And my wife said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting the right one. That was the right one, she said. And I said, no, it's not because this one's 15 cents a pound cheaper. It's definitely the right one. And she said, yeah, but you'll have heart disease and all sorts of things if you, if you eat something with that much fat in it. I said, you know what else causes heart disease? Something else is financial distress, which will be caused if we pay 15 cents a pound more. Thing about our church. There's no conflict here at any 
like this. In case we ever do have conflict at some point in the future, however likely that may be, I want to make sure that we're ready. And so I want to talk for a little bit about how we go back to the gospel when conflict tears us apart. I want to talk first about just what is the gospel. I want us to think about that and make sure we know what we're talking about there. The gospel, one way we might say it, is that it's the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by which God is restoring our relationship with himself by grace and revealing his kingdom in the world. The gospel includes the kingdom of God, it includes the cross and the empty tomb, and it includes the grace of God enacted in our lives. And there are two primary ways that the gospel has gotten distorted at different times in the history of Christianity. One of them is that the gospel is sometimes reduced to the response. Now, some of you may have been raised like me in churches where the gospel was reduced to the response. In other words, if you ask me, what is the gospel? It's accept Jesus. Pray this prayer after me. If you pray this prayer, you're made right with God. It doesn't matter if it transforms your life. It doesn't matter if it changes you in any way. Just pray this prayer. Say these words. That is the gospel. The gospel is reduced to a response. Has anybody else raised in a church like that? Some of you got that. You know what I'm talking about in that. Now, that's the issue they were actually dealing with in the the book of James. James, they said, it's only the response. There's no response needed other than just having a bare minimum faith. There's no works that that grow out of that. But that's not the problem they're having in Galatians. In Galatians, the issue is the opposite of that. Trying to make the gospel include more than Jesus. Trying to expand the gospel and add more to the gospel than Jesus. And there's a principle I want you to get that is crucial for you to understand what's happening here. If we add to the gospel or subtract from the gospel, the result is no gospel at all. Understand that. Understand that if you add 1% of human works to the gospel, 1%, You don't have a 101% gospel, you have a 0% gospel. If you take away 1% of what Jesus did and the sufficiency of his work, you don't have a 99% gospel, you have a 0% gospel. The gospel cannot be compromised, and that's why Paul said, even if we or an angel from the sky should proclaim to you a gospel other than the one you received. He says in chapter 1, verse 9, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. To hell with him. That's Paul's strongest language he uses here, but he uses it for somebody who manipulates and changes the gospel. Because the gospel is central to all that we are, to all that we do as the people of God. And that's why whenever we face conflict in a church, what we should do as brothers and sisters in Christ is to go back to the gospel that brings us together and work outward from there. That's what we should do as the people of God. Now, when Paul writes to this book to the Galatians, it's only been about a year since he was there with Barnabas. So it's only a year has passed from time to this time and the time when he writes to them, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Antioch, these cities along the way. And if we look at these cities, we even see that he visited some of them twice. He went through there and then back through there again. And that helps you understand why Paul says in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am amazed you are so quickly abandoning the message. It's like I was just there. I visited twice. I've been there 
there, how on earth are you so quickly walking away from this message? It's like your kids, you clean a room and you leave for an hour and you walk back in the room and it looks like a landfill. You're like, who did this? And how did this happen? How did you make this big of a mess in this short of a time? And that's what Paul's saying to them. How did you make this big of a mess of the gospel in this short of a time? Remembering that Paul's goal in every place is for every person to hear the gospel. We see that in Acts 13, how he, the gospel reaches out. He talks about how that, that, he, that what has come into the church have been Jews, that is ethnic Jews, converts, which are non-Jews that have converted to Judaism. It says that the nations, the Gentiles, the worshipers of Roman gods and goddesses, they had heard the good news and they began rejoicing. Paul has this pattern in every town. And what he does is he goes in and he first speaks in the synagogue. And he goes to the synagogue and he shares the gospel and tells them the gospel is both for Jews and Gentiles. The Messiah they've been waiting for is for Jews and Gentiles both. A few of those people may buy into that. And then Paul goes to the Gentiles in the town and he gathers them together and he gathers both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus into one community. And then he goes and repeats it in the next town. Now I don't know if you realize how radical this is. Do you realize that in this world, that a Jew and a Gentile couldn't even so much as eat together? They wouldn't even eat together. A Jew and a Gentile, and yet suddenly, Paul is bringing them together in these communities where they are eating together, drinking together. They are studying the scriptures together. They are even marrying one another. And there are plenty of Gentiles in the churches, but the majority are Jews in the churches. So what's happening in Galatia? is that some false brothers have come in and they've infiltrated the churches and they're saying that Paul got the gospel secondhand and Paul changed the gospel. He didn't tell you the full story of the gospel. Now Paul is writing Galatians to set this story straight. And in chapter two, what he does is he says, you know what, that situation you're having in Galatia, I had a similar situation a few years ago with Peter and James and John. So he begins describing, he says, this happened 14 years after I had a vision of the risen Lord that threw me to the ground and I became a believer. And Paul had gone up there, gone to Jerusalem, because, not because he was trying to figure out what the gospel was, but rather he goes to Jerusalem, he says, in response to a revelation. I think that refers back to Acts chapter 11. Where a prophet named Agabus receives a revelation from God that there is going to be a famine throughout the world. And so the disciples determined to send relief to Judea with Paul and Barnabas. But while he's there, Paul meets with the big three, Peter, James, John. Now James is not the same James we find in the Gospels because that James was martyred already. This James is James, the brother of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus. And Paul says he meets with him to make sure that his proclamation is not in vain. In other words, he's working through with them to make absolutely certain. He's not getting the gospel from them. He's working through with them in community to make sure that what he is proclaiming is the same truth that they had heard from Jesus himself. That they had heard. So what did they have to say when they heard his gospel? Now before we look at that, we have to look at specifically what in Galatia they're saying Paul left out of the gospel. 
And to do that, we have to talk about something super awkward, which is circumcision. Okay? A lot of times, if there's a difficult concept, we like to put it on the screen and illustrate it. But we tried to stay PG, PG-13, and that just didn't go with that right there. It's all in the Bible, circumcision is. It's all we to talk about. And the verses on circumcision, they never make it on coffee mugs or plaques if they saw the Christian bookstore. Never are there. And if you look at children's comic books and Bible story books, the section on circumcision always cut out. No pun intended on that. The, the problem is, the problem is, is that today that we have, the parents either choose circumcision or not based on all sorts of clinical and cultural reasons, none of which has anything to do with what's in the Bible about none of which. So put all that out of your mind. So what I want you to understand is that back then, almost the only people who were ever circumcised were Jewish men. That solves a question I had a long time. It's like, how did they know who was and wasn't? Because if there was a committee in the church on that, I bet it was hard to get volunteers for that one. <laughs> you know, I, I park people, I, I do the parking, I welcome people, I check circumcisions, okay? That's, that's just not something you want to have on your resume at all. But what's happening is that they knew that if somebody came into the church and was a Jewish male, he would be circumcised, and if they were Gentile, they wouldn't. And it goes all the way back to Genesis. When God said to Abraham, not when Abraham was an infant, mind you, he was 99, at which point I'm pretty sure Abraham said, God, can we not just do a secret handshake and call it even at this point? He's 99 years old. And God said, this needs to happen to you and to all of your descendants after you. But the point of it was that this separation of flesh from flesh symbolized the separation of Abraham's descendants from all the other people's of the world. And so it became a sign of God's covenant that declared Abraham's descendants to be a distinct and unique people. Now, according to the false teachers, the ones that they thought they were kind of cut above everybody else, this was a social identity marker, okay? The social identity marker identified you as somebody who was right with, who was in covenant with Israel's God, and without this, you were an outsider. So they said Paul only got part of God. The whole gospel is this. You trust Jesus and if you're a male, you need to be circumcised. That makes new members class a lot more exciting at that point. Because they say, you know, this is part of what has to happen before you can really be part of the church and a true believer in Jesus Christ. We got, of course, the people in the church, the Gentile men, you know, there's some small print that Paul forgot to mention about that. He should have mentioned that. He didn't mention it. So people were questioning in the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia. They were questioning whether they were really believers in Jesus. And I want us to understand what's kind of going in, going, going on right here in terms of the people that it was terrifying to some of them. Because they were wondering, am I really a follower of Jesus or not? Did I go through everything I've went through to follow Jesus, the things I've lost to follow him? Did I go through that? For nothing, because I'm not really a believer in Jesus at all, because I believe Paul's gospel, and they're saying there's another gospel. And remember that many of the early Christians who were Gentiles were also people who were slaves. Many of them were marginalized already in society. And they had believed Paul's gospel, and now people said, you didn't get the whole thing. There's something else you need to add, something you need to do besides what Paul preached. But that's not what Paul proclaimed at all. 
Paul had proclaimed that Jesus alone makes us right with God. That it's Jesus plus nothing, Jesus minus nothing, and that the outward sign of what God has done within us is not something like circumcision, it is rather the outward sign is baptism and that they have been baptized into him. Not because baptism saves us, it doesn't, but it shows outwardly what God has done inwardly when we trust him and he unites us with Christ. And when God unites us with Christ, he gives us all the righteousness, all the goodness of Christ, all the keeping of God's covenants in Christ. All of that becomes ours in Christ. And all those Old Testament laws, they were preparation and preservation of the people through whom Jesus would be brought into the world. But in Jesus, when we trust in him, God sees us with all of his righteousness. God sees us as the people who have obeyed him perfectly. God sees us as people that he cannot think anything more or less of us than he thinks of Jesus because he's given all the goodness of Jesus to us. According to Paul, Jesus plus the law was no gospel at all. And Paul's proof was twofold. He said, first off, when I went up to see the big three, Peter, James, and John, when I went up to see them, I had with me a friend named Titus who was a Gentile and who was uncircumcised, and they did not make him be circumcised before they accepted him as a brother in Christ. But then he says also in verse 6, those who seemed influential added nothing to me. They added nothing to me. They proclaimed the same gospel as me. And so Paul said, we would not yield even for a moment. We wouldn't yield. So I would not give up anything about the gospel I preached. And I didn't have to because they said that the gospel I was preaching was the same one they were preaching. You wonder, why did Paul make such a big deal about this? I mean, why didn't he just try to negotiate something, a settlement with them in which, okay, we'll do a little bit of the law, but not all of the law. Why? Was this such a big deal for Paul? There's a couple of reasons that are really important. Number one is this one. It would have destroyed the church's unity by elevating one culture above another. That's what it would have done. There's a phrase in Acts chapter 10 that is kind of said, stated differently, but the same phrase in verse 6 of Galatians that says God shows no partiality. And when that's spoken in Acts chapter 10, it is spoken in the context of Jew versus Gentile, and it's saying God shows no partiality between cultures. You see, what the false teachers wanted to do was to elevate Jewish culture, the majority culture in their churches, with greater leverage to elevate that above the Gentiles. This wasn't about a little outpatient surgery. It was about whether the gospel would become truly multi-ethnic and multicultural. You see, the gospel creates a new culture. And God planned for the gospel to create a new culture that brought Jews and Gentiles into community, but not by obliterating their existing cultures or by forcing conformity to any human culture. Rather, we see that God designs this in a way that celebrates the good and the beautiful in each culture and it seeks to redeem what is corrupt in each culture. There is nothing like this in all of ancient history. Nothing like this in all of 
history where you have a situation that people are invited in and bring their culture to create a new culture that brings people together in a way that transcends their differences. I'll tell you what's heartbreaking in this, if I'm honest about it, is that over the next three or four centuries after this, the roles reverse. And the majority culture becomes not Jewish, but Gentile. And we find that increasingly those who are not Jewish expect the Jews to conform to their culture. And we have an entire heritage of anti-Semitism that grows out of that. Not only that, we see ways that Christianity is mingled with European culture. Such that instead of contextualizing the gospel in other cultures, what ended up happening is that Christianity became an excuse and a tool to impose human cultures on others. We see this over and over and over in history, don't we? It's an awful thing. But it helps us to see that this is still relevant today. I'm just going to go ahead and say some things that may get me in all sorts of trouble what I've said this morning. But my email address is jwilliams at Sojourn Church. I would have thought this would have died by now. But just over the past few weeks, a few months, a statement comes out that's well-intended and has some real truth in it, but signed by a lot of evangelical pastors, and makes this claim, hear this, we affirm that some cultures operate on assumptions that are better than those of other cultures because of biblical truths that inform them. Do you hear what I'm saying? The opposite of God shows no partiality. The opposite of that. This thinking should have died decades ago, but it is destructive to the cause of Christ. Because what it's trying to say is a Western European culture is more Judeo-Christian, therefore it's superior to other cultures. That's a lie. It is a lie. Every culture has corruption and every culture has grace in it. And what the gospel does is it seeks to redeem the things that are corrupted and seeks to celebrate what is beautiful and good, but bring all of them into conformity with and under the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel does. And we see here that the Jesus that Paul and James and Peter and John proclaimed was a Jesus for all people. And the gospel that Paul was fighting for was a gospel that was not limited to any human culture, that did not seek to elevate any human culture over another, but rather what it did is created a culture that brought all peoples together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we want. That's what we seek. There's another reason Paul fought so hard against these lies that were being told about the gospel. And it's because Paul's gospel was a gospel that welcomed women as equals. I want you to hear this. See, circumcision in the Old Testament law was a men's only thing. And it's because it was meant to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And it was fulfilled in him. But if you were a woman, your only connection to the sign of the covenant was by being connected to a man who bore the sign of the covenant. And the gospel obliterates that. The gospel shatters that. You as a woman are in Christ. 
you are an equal heir of all of God's blessings. And the outward sign of that is not something that's limited to men or to women. The outward sign of it is our baptism that we share together. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, he says these words, as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ, and now there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Yeah. How many contexts were there in the ancient world where a man and a woman could be treated as equal heirs of anything? Zero. None. It should not surprise us then that a century from the time that these words were written, about two-thirds of the church was women. It was attractive to them. They had a voice in the churches as deacons and as prophets, and there was a respect for them. One of my favorite little sidelights is one of the church fathers from a guy named Athenagoras. He writes it in the second century. And here's what he says. He says, we do not practice sexual immorality. Our rules say, if a man gives a holy kiss to a woman a second time for his own pleasure, he sins. Now, that's a weird little statement right there. And one of the church fathers, but remember that whereas we shake hands, they would kiss one another. And he says, look, if you are going after this in a way that is for your pleasure, in an abusive or an exploitative way, then we will call you out some of us. I love that. I love that in the church fathers, that this is so much part of their culture that they say, you don't even kiss her a second time. Think about what that says about the culture in, that the church was creating on the basis of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if they would have returned to circumcision as a mark of the covenant, it would have been a rejection of God's plan for a gospel. But welcome women as equal heirs of the and so Paul fights it. Paul says, no, I will not have that. Women are to be accepted as equal heirs of the gospel. Amen. And that should impact and shape the way you treat your sisters in Christ right now. Amen. Have that in your mind. Have that in your mind that I will treat with respect, with honor, and as an equal, as an equal. Make sure in your community group, you're talking over women because you think they don't have anything to offer. Are you in your community groups treating them as if they have nothing to say and to speak to you? Then you need to repent and recognize that's antithetical to the very gospel itself. Stop. That is not the message of Christ. That is the message that is one that centers on something other than the gospel itself. In the end, James and Peter and John added nothing to the message. They said, Paul, you got the right message. And they sent out Paul to proclaim the gospel, not only among the Jewish people, but also among the nations. But they send Paul to the nations with a particular expectation. Look at verse 10. It says, they called him to remember the poor. Now remember that many in Jerusalem were struggling financially. James and John, it says Cephas in this text because that's his Aramaic name that he was known by to Judean believers. But they wanted to make certain that the churches that Paul planted helped their brothers and sisters who were in need during a time of famine. But this is also a reminder. The gospel is not merely about me getting right with God so I can get to heaven. 
The gospel creates communities that seek and share God's kingdom here and now. That's not adding something to the gospel. It is recognizing that the gospel has particular social implications. And one of the implications of the gospel is a transformation that creates communities that care for the powerless and the vulnerable. That's an implication that comes out of the gospel. It's an implication for the ways that we seek justice in our world. When we are seeking an end to systemic injustices in our world, that is not the gospel, but it is something that for us as Christians should flow directly out of the gospel. So that we seek justice in the world around us. The gospel is not just getting to heaven. It's about seeing that God has begun even now in our world. Years later, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, for your sakes, Christ became poor. And when we care for the vulnerable around us, we reveal our love for Christ who became poor for us. This isn't something new. This is something people have just started talking about recently. I go back to the 16th century to Martin Luther, where he says, next to proclaiming the gospel, it is the task of every good pastor to pay attention to the poor. Go to the 2nd and the 3rd and the 4th centuries, where Christians, even by their neighbors that hated them, were known for caring for those who were underprivileged, those who were ill, those who were broken, those that were suffering injustice. So what do we do when we have conflict in our churches? What do we do? Well, when you feel that anger rising in you at someone, frustration that things aren't going your way, go back to the gospel. This is what ties us together. This is what binds us together and creates a community that rejoices in all the ways that we are different, but also in the one way that we are the same, which is the same gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for how we live? I want you to pursue a gospel that is big as Jesus. See, what the false teachers were claiming is that Jesus isn't quite enough. You need a little bit more than Jesus. So proclaim, I want us to proclaim and to pursue a gospel that's as big as Jesus. How do you know when you're doing that? Think about some time when you really mess up in your life. You really blow it. Sin, blown it. Do you run toward Jesus in repentance or do you cower away from him in fear? Do you know what we're saying when we cower away from him? And sometimes we can go deeper into our sin. We're saying, Jesus, you're not sufficient to deal with what I've done. But he is sufficient. He is enough. When we have a sin in our life that we're just saying, I'm gonna, this is going to be the way it always is. I'm just going to always have this one. You're saying, Jesus, is not sufficient to defeat this sin. Recognize Jesus is enough and have a gospel that is as big as Jesus. Here's what that does. It frees us up to be able to be honest with one another and still love one another. That's what it frees us up to be able to do. Here's what it means very practically. When you are but a brother and sister in Christ, when you get at odds with each other and you just settle on the fact that, you know what, we're just always, they're going to sit on that side of the sanctuary and I'm going to sit on that side. If the gospel is as big as Jesus, 
You can, when you have a conflict with a fellow believer, you can have that conflict, but go away from that in confidence that Jesus is able to bring you back together. It's that big. It's that wonderful in Christ. Secondly, I want us to chase after a gospel that sets us free to crucify our expectations. Here's the honest truth. We all love ourselves. We may not admit it or say it, but we love us, okay? And because we love us, we would kind of like everybody else to be like us. And most of our conflict comes when somebody else isn't quite like us. That's what happens. Crucify your expectations. Crucify those demands that people in my church have to look like me, have to do things like me. Crucify it. Because what binds us together is not how we're the same in the ways that humanly we may seek, but the ways that we are the same because we are one in Christ. That's what brings us together. The third thing I want you to change in the way you live in response to this, not to earn God's favor, but to respond to this. Live with confidence and obedience and a victory that is already won. Live with confidence in a victory that's already won. Do you know one of the ways that the word gospel was used outside the New Testament? See, Paul didn't invent this word. Jesus didn't even invent this word. It existed outside the New Testament. And one of the ways that this word was used outside the New Testament was that if a king in a certain battlefield and in a certain city, he wins a great victory. And he needs to send a messenger back home to say, our king has won. He would send that person with gospel. Gospel. Gospel was the message that my king has won the battle. That's what the gospel is. My king won. He's already the victory. The victory. And here's how that should impact our lives. One of the ways... We shouldn't be the people who grumble and groan and complain. Now, there's a time in our lives for lament, and that's true and real. There's a time in our life for righteous indignation, and that's real, and that's good. There's a lot of times, though, that we just complain about the way things are. But we should be, as Christians, the people of joy and confidence. Why? My king has already won my king has won the battle. All that I need to be who God has created me to be, to, to be, Jesus has already purchased on the cross. All that we need to be the church that God called us to be is Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. We can live with confidence and joy and hope because my king has already won. He's already the victor. I emphasize that because I sincerely believe the upcoming year is just a, a crucial year for our church. In terms of our growth as a community, in terms of becoming that community of diversity that we are called to be, that we feel this, this calling and this urge and this longing burning to be. I feel that it is. Jamal has, by God's power, led us so well up to this point. And I think this upcoming year is a beautiful year that we have ahead of us. And I want us to go in to those, these next months and years with confidence. 
See, our king has already secured everything that is necessary for us to be the community he created us to be. Conflict. It's always closer than you thought it would be. Marriage, yeah, but also in the church. You may be thinking, maybe you just visited for a short while and you're thinking, not here, this is the perfect church. You may even have believed me earlier when I said we never have conflict. You may have believed me. That wasn't true, okay? You may have believed me at that point. I just want to tell you, stick around long enough, we'll disappoint you. Don't worry. <laughs> but that's okay. Because it's not about total agreement with one another. It's not about perfect performance. It's about a shared commitment to the gospel that brought us together in the first place. That's what it's about. And that gospel is enough and our Savior.